have have you ever been promised something? Promised something significant, something great, something that you're really looking forward to, only to have that promise revoked? Have you ever had an experience like that before? How many of you uh, remember the TV, the hit TV show, Extreme Makeover? You guys remember this show, Extreme Makeover? Uh, Several years ago, a lawsuit was filed against the producers of that TV show. You know how the lawsuit began? It began with these words. Here's the first line on the lawsuit. It said, quote, Delise Williams is considered ugly. The remaining 31 pages of the complaint tell the story of a Texas wife and mother who was promised a series of cosmetic surgeries that would, quote, transform her life and destiny. However, that dream was shattered when one of the dental surgeons reported that Williams' recovery time would be longer than expected. Do you know what the producers did? They pulled Williams from the show the night before her surgeries were scheduled to begin and then put her on a plane back to Texas. According to the lawsuit, Williams sobbed uncontrollably when she was given this news. Quote, how can I get my life back? How how can I go back as ugly as I left, she said. I was supposed to come home pretty. Wesley Cordova, an attorney for Williams, claims that her suffering continues from this promise of having this makeover and having it being taken away. The attorney says, quote, Delise is so hurt and humiliated, she won't leave the house now. The lawsuit also claims that Williams' family has been severely impacted as well. Before they decided to send her back, the producers coached her family members to focus on nothing, listen to this, nothing except the physical flaws and imperfections of Delise and even push them to verbally express their opinions on taped interviews. Interviews which Delise later saw. The lawsuit claims, quote, now that she returned in the same condition in which she left, there were no secrets, no hidden feelings, and no rewards. Can you imagine? You're you're promised an extreme physical makeover. Yet in place of there being a big reveal... There's instead disappointment and sadness. What would you have done if you were in Delise's shoes? How would you have felt? Friend, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Bible teaches that in Christ, a believer, a Christian, they receive 
an extreme makeover. The Scripture teaches that in Christ, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible describes them and calls them a new creation. Indeed, as we've been learning in Ephesians 2, the blood of Christ makes the church one new man. The blood of Christ makes the church one new man. As Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2.15, the blood of Christ just doesn't bring us near to God. The blood of Christ just doesn't bring us near to one another. No, it does something even greater than that. It makes us one new man. Friend, please hear me. Through our union with Christ, we become something new and greater. Which begs the question, okay, in Christ we become one new man. What does that new man look like? In Christ we are one new man. So what does this extreme makeover that Scripture speaks about, what does that look like? Well, our passage this morning answers that very question. In many ways, faith, Ephesians 2, 19-22, it's the big reveal of Ephesians 2. That is, Ephesians 2, 19-22, is, it's the final episode. It's the moment when the curtain is lifted and out walks forward and we get to see this transformed new person. And think of how Ephesians 2 has been building up to this moment. In verses 11 through 12, Paul highlights our before, right? Who we once were. That is, he reminds us of who we once were. We were separated from God's Son. We were separated from God's promises. We were separated from God Himself, right? We were without hope in this world, Paul says. This is our before. Then in verses 13 through 18, this is what we looked at last week, those verses show us how. They teach how the blood of Christ makes the church one new man. As we talked about last week, in many ways, those verses are like an episode of how I built this. For it details what the blood of Christ accomplished in order to make the church one new man. And recall that by His blood, Jesus has brought us near, He achieved our peace, and He's granted us access. This is how the blood of Christ has made us one new man. Well, now in the verses we're going to give attention to this morning, verses 19 through 22, we get the big reveal. We get to view what this new man looks like. You see, faith, unlike Delise and the extreme makeover producers, our God makes good on his promise to transform us. And Christian, what we're about to read, this is true of you. This is what you've become through your union with Christ. And what is that? What is the blood of Christ produced in you? What is your new look? 
Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's page 977 in that paperback Bible. And as I mentioned this morning, we're going to give attention to verses 19 through 22. However, to get the whole context, I'm going to start reading back in verse 11. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so that's, that's us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we once were. Now look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, meaning far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Through the person and work of Christ, this hostility between Jews and Gentiles, Christ has broken that down. He's, he's done away with that wall of hostility, making peace. Not only peace with one another, but more importantly, peace with God. Because as he says there in verse 16, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. What, what a glorious truth that is, Christian. You don't come into this world with a direct line. It's not like the bat phone, right? With a direct line to God. We are separated. Our sin separates us from God. But through Christ, we now have access to God as our Father. So this is what the blood of Christ has accomplished. And now here's the reveal. This is who we now are in Christ. Notice the language Paul uses, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This is God's good word. In 2005, Moses Bittock 
celebrated an experience he had waited a lifetime to achieve. You know what that experience was that he waited a lifetime to achieve? It was him becoming a U.S. citizen. Now, that alone would have been enough to give a native Kenyan the happiest day of his life that ended up just being a prelude. Because get a load of this. On his way home from Des Moines, Iowa, the federal building there where he became a, a U.S. citizen, he then decided to stop by a gas station to see the winning numbers of the Iowa State Lottery. Guess what? He was surprised to find on that same day that he had won $1.8 million. True story. Can you imagine? Becoming a U.S. citizen and the same day winning the Iowa State Lottery over $1.8 million. In an interview, Bittock said, quote, it's almost like you adopted a new country and they netted you $1.8 million. He then continued and he said this, it doesn't happen anywhere, I guess only in America. Well, actually, something like that does happen, happen elsewhere. In fact, I'm going to suggest that something better than that happens and it happens for those who are in Christ. I want you to notice, Faith, the strong, clear language Paul uses in verse 19. Have your eyes fall there once more. He is using identity language. He says, we are no longer this, but now we are this. We are no longer strangers and aliens. No, in Christ we become something better. And in those final verses of Ephesians 2, Paul reveals who we are as the new man in Christ. And notice he employs three metaphors. And notice, first, Paul teaches that in Christ you've become a citizen of God's kingdom. A citizen of God's kingdom. This is true of every Christian. If you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, part of what it means to be a new man, this new man in the church, is that you are now a citizen of God's kingdom. And as we're about to see, I'm going to suggest the benefits of being a citizen of God's kingdom far surpasses winning the lottery. Look again at what he says there in verse 19. Paul writes, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You know, uh, earlier when Steve was praying for our church and for our nation, he, he briefly just mentioned China. And I don't know if you know this or not, but it is not illegal to be a Christian in China. Indeed, China is home to some large churches with great and beautiful buildings. You see, to, to worship in China, to have a church in China, 
All you have to do is comply with all the mandates and requirements of the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP. And that was the case for Pastor Lai. Pastor Lai over in China, he found favor with the CCP authorities as long as his congregation was part of the government-established and controlled church network. However, Lai grew increasingly uncomfortable as he realized how much control the CCP had over the church. Here's, here's his picture. You see, please hear me. The CCP has the right to monitor who attends registered churches as well as what the pastors preach. They also control how and when the church meets. Now imagine that for a moment. Imagine our government controlling and censoring what I preach. Imagine them dictating what we as a church can or could not say. Imagine them restricting when and how we can meet corporately. That's China. So you know what Pastor Lai did? He and his congregation left the CCP-controlled church. They became an unregistered church in China. They became one of the underground churches in China, knowing full well, please hear me, that that would bring upon them persecution and harm. You see, unregistered churches are illegal in China. And because they are illegal, unregistered churches face intense persecution from the state. And you know what? That's precisely what happened to Pastor Lai and his church. According to a recent Voice of the Martyrs magazine, this man, Pastor Lai, was arrested in their beautiful church building, a building that seats over 500 was intentionally demolished by the CCP police. We're praying for a church building. Could you imagine giving up a church building and seeing it destroyed? This is, when I want, this is why I mentioned this story. When asked why Pastor Lai and the whole congregation were willing to do this, you, knowing that if they left this, they would face suffering and persecution. You know what Pastor Lai said? He said this. He said, we left the CCP-controlled church to honor the Lord Jesus as the only head of the church. Notice the first metaphor Paul uses to describe this new man this new creation, this new man that the blood of Christ has created in the church. Christian, Paul says that you are now a citizen with the saints. As several commentators have correctly pointed out, Paul is referring to citizenship in God's kingdom. This is in contrast to what he said earlier in verse 11, how Gentiles, we were far off, right? Strangers. Christian, if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, do you know what this means? 
It means Jesus is your king and he is to be your highest authority. Indeed, as Pastor Lai so powerfully illustrates, that means you honor Jesus as the only head of the church and the head and king of your life, even if that brings with it, at times, hardship and suffering. You see, Faith, the fact that you are a citizen of God's kingdom has significant implications for your life. The chief being, and I don't want to be Captain Obvious here, but the chief being, Christ is our highest authority. He is our king. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, does our life demonstrate, does my life, does your life demonstrate that you are actually under the rule and reign of the king of the kingdom, Jesus? That is, are you a good citizen of God's kingdom? And I would humbly suggest to all of us here who are thankful for this nation and praise God for the freedoms we have and love our country, I would humbly suggest that the only way for us to be good earthly citizens of this nation is by honoring Jesus as our highest authority. May he alone be the head, not only of our church, but of our lives. Amen? But there's another important implication to the reality that we are now citizens of God's kingdom. Let me ask you, and I want you to interact with me here, okay? How many people do you think were living in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter? Shout out number. What do you, how many do you think? 100,000, did you say? 400, okay. 400, do I hear five? Do I hear six? Five. Higher or lower, anyone else? 3,000, a low number, what? A million, a higher number? Two million? Most scholars estimate around 200,000. Now listen to this. Of that 200,000, how many do you think were citizens in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, New Testament scholar Stephen Ball points out that in Ephesus, archaeologists, they recently discovered a late 2nd to early 3rd century inscription which praises the magnificent generosity of a visitor who put on an 11-day event banquet, and this is what it says, for the city leaders, and listen to this, it's 1,000 citizens. That's right, in a city of more than 200,000 people, less than 1,000, just about 1,000, were privileged to be citizens. Now, now keep in mind, Ephesus had grown quite dramatically by the time of this letter, so that a century earlier, Paul's, during Paul's first century period, the citizen body was undoubtedly smaller than 1,000. So you know what this means? As Paul writes, he says this, for Paul to say that his Christian Gentile audience were fellow citizens with the saints would have communicated what a stunningly elite privilege God has bestowed on his people in Christ. 
You see, having citizenship in the ancient world meant you had special rights and protection. This is why, for example, um, the city officials at Philippi, who had beaten Paul and Silas without trial, they became so alarmed when they learned that those two were Roman citizens in Acts 16. The officials knew that knew of the power and protection that Rome could extend and exercise against them for their mistreatment of its citizens. So all this to say, I'm going to pull it together. So when Paul reminds us that we are fellow citizens with God's people, he's reminding us that we have the power and protection of heaven. Countering the vulnerabilities we feel in our travel through this world, Paul says that we have the privileges of our heavenly citizenship to protect us. Privileges far greater than winning the lottery. So look, so as citizens of God's kingdom, we have Jesus as our king, who we are to submit to. And we also have Jesus as our king, who will guide and protect us. Nothing we experience escapes his notice. Nothing happens without his knowledge for our good and his glory. But second, in Christ, he's also become a member of God's household. Look at that second phrase there in verse 19. Paul writes, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Uh, this past Wednesday, the Boston Celtics, they beat the Miami Heat 134 to 121 in Boston. As, as some of you might know, um, the Boston Celtics have an interim coach, Joe Maluza, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, uh, who is a Christian. Joe is a Christian. Now, i got to be really honest with you, I don't follow the NBA that much. Big NHL guy. However, this, this game that I just mentioned, it received national attention because Prince William and Kate Middleton were there in attendance to watch the game. And during the post-game press conference, Coach Joe was asked this question. He asked, did you get a chance to meet the royal family? And if not, what was it like to have them in the building? He said, you know, did you get a chance to meet the royal family? To which Joe replied, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? (laughs) 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 Laughing, the reporter said, no, 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 no. The the prince and princess of Wales. To which Joe then said, no, I did not. He says, I'm only familiar with one royal family. I don't know too much about that other one, but hopefully they're Celtics fans. <laughs> did, it, did any of you see this? Okay, so, okay, yeah. Now, when Joe was saying this, listen, he wasn't joking. Nor was he being mean to the reporter. No, his response, he was being very sincere. I, I only know of one royal family. 
He's being very sincere. And you know what? Rightfully so. Christian, because of the saving work of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now part of the royal family of God. This not only means that we have God as our Father, which Paul makes explicitly clear in verse 18, but it also means that we have Jesus as our elder brother and one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. In Christ, we become members of God's household. We are part of an eternal family. Amen? And this isn't the only place Paul describes Christians as being members of God's household, is it? I mean, think of 1 Timothy 3.15. In that passage, Paul applies the household metaphor of God in order to encourage appropriate and responsible behavior within the church. Right? We're called to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not all. What you have to understand is that in the Roman world at this time, to be a member of a household meant you had refuge and protection. It gave security and a sense of belonging. This is to say, faith, please hear me. <laughs> Amen. This is to say, a household was something that was valued. And I think it's very appropriate to ask ourselves, do we value the household of God? That is, do we value the local church? Do we esteem the relationships we have here in this church? Do you value your brothers and sisters? You know, if you, if you visit our home at the right time on a Saturday, you will find all our kids doing chores. They're vacuuming, they're sweeping, they're dusting, they're collecting trash. They're all, they're all pitching in and they're helping and they're serving one another in our family by carrying out certain responsibilities. Right? And probably the case is for most of your households as well. To be part of a household is, I take upon myself responsibilities to serve and care for the others in the household. Faith, the church is not a building we go to or an event we attend. The church is a family living together on mission and serving one another and sharing responsibilities joyfully. Let us be careful to not treat the church as a hotel. You know, uh, visiting a place occasionally and giving a tip if you feel you were served well. Rather, the church is part of your Christian identity. We, we need to understand that we all have a role in God's household. And I really want to, I really want to play into, into this here. And, and this is going to transition nicely into my next point. Um, Christian, you are needed. Especially of those who are, who are playing the back nine of your life, do not think you are unneeded in a church. Those that are young do not think you are unneeded. You are, you, are a, you are a family member and we need one another. We need each other's encouragement, service, love. We need each other's at times rebuke. And you know what else we need? We just need your presence 
as it encourages us as we gather together to worship King Jesus. Amen? But then third, in Christ, you've also become a stone in God's temple. Look at these last two verses. Verse 20. It says, The household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Excuse me. In him you also have been built together into a dwelling place. Excuse me. For God by the Spirit. How many of you, uh, when you go to the grocery store and you're going to buy like some meat or bread, something that's perishable, how many of you check the sell-by date before you buy it. Good, so I do too. And, and you know why I do that? <laughs> I want to know just how new and fresh this thing is I'm buying, right? I don't want to buy something that's past its expiration date, something that's rotten, something that's old. I check the sell-by date just to know how new and fresh that item is. So Paul has been arguing that the blood of Christ makes the church one new man. Faith, please hear me. By him employing this final metaphor to describe the church as God's temple, you know what Paul is doing? He's emphasizing just how new and fresh this man is. And you know why? Because nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament is Israel ever called or referred to as the temple of God. They had a temple, but they were not the temple. What Paul is describing here is a completely new reality as a result of Christ's work. You see, the reason why we as Christians are now stones in the temple of God is because of our union with Christ, who himself is the true and final temple of God. Amen? Everything the temple represented in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. And now, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the temple of God. His Spirit dwells in us, as Paul writes there in verse 22. Indeed, as our memory verse this month reminds us, do you not know that you are what? The temple of God. Glorify God in your body, right? Right? For nearly a thousand years, the temple had been a focal point of Israel, from Solomon to Zerubbabel to Herod. Now there is a new temple made up of people. And notice what Paul identifies as the foundation of this temple. Look there at verse 20. He writes that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the word order here, apostles first, prophets second, it suggests that Paul means New Testament apostles and prophets. The prophets being those to whom and through whom the word of God was proclaimed. In support of this meaning, Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 say that the mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is to say, the foundation of this new temple is God's Word. 
Right? And this should not surprise us. As Steve has prayed, as, as we pray, it's, it's evident the church stands or falls based on its faithfulness to God's word. Luke says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? That is foundational. And listen, if we tamper with the foundation, the temple will crumble. Is it any wonder then why Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season? Right? The word of God is the foundation of this new temple that God has built. Yet as important as the foundation is, there's another component of even greater significance, and that is the cornerstone. And notice, who does, who does Paul identify as the cornerstone of this new temple of God? It's Jesus, right? The answer is Jesus. Now this is immensely rich imagery, and let me tell you why. For hundreds of years, cornerstone had been a prophetic designation for the Messiah, in addition, virtually every ancient Hebrew understood the importance of the cornerstone. For it determines the stability of the foundation and the character of the entire building. The Jerusalem temple itself had huge stones like this, the greatest of which, listen to this, was 29 feet in length, the size of a railroad boxcar. You see, the cornerstone decided the architectural unity and symmetry of the temple. The lay of the walls, the dimensions of the structure, were a result of the chief cornerstone. Please hear me. All other stones had to adjust to it. Did you hear me? All other stones had to adjust to the cornerstone. There's an application here, isn't there? Are we in our lives adjusting to the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we trying to make him fit into our way of living? To use another biblical medical for a friend, we are the clay, he is the potter, not the other way around. We are called to adjust our lives in obedience to Christ, the chief cornerstone. This is what it means to be a stone and not the cornerstone. We adjust. And keep in mind, this temple is composed of both believing Jews and Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles were excluded, were they not? From the Jerusalem temple by a wall and by signs that said, if you come this way, you're going to be put to death. Now get a little of what Paul is saying. Now, in Christ, these Gentiles actually form the wall of the new temple. So what does this mean? Well, practically it means, and I've alluded to this already, every person counts. We need one another. We need each other's, as I said, talents, treasure, love, resources, encouragement, and even rebuke. For notice what Paul says there in verse 21. We grow when we are joined together. Friend, to be separate from the church is to say, you know what, 
I want to be a stone apart from a building. Or I want to be a son or a daughter apart from my family. And, and I'm just, in the days and months and years to come, what we're doing right now is only going to increase in importance. That we, we gather as God's people to remind ourselves He's our King, we're citizens of this kingdom, we're members of His household, and we're stones in His temple as we come together for mutual encouragement and to remind each other of these truths. Faith, what a makeover God has produced the work of His Son. Amen? God has brought near those who are far off, reconciling them to Himself and one another, and has made the church one new man. In Christ we are now citizens of God's kingdom, member of God's household, and stones in God's temple. And my prayer is that we would value the local church as much as God values the local church. This church that he's made an extreme makeover. Created a new man. And whether your, your task or the way that you're able to share in the household responsibility is maybe stacking a chair after the service or just coming and smiling and greet one another and blessing them by your presence, we, Faith, let me just say again, we need each other. Let us, let us take this responsibility seriously. Amen? Let's pray.